This is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We give entrepreneurs with full-time jobs a step-by-step path to build their idea on the side. Our loans to build companies worth over a billion dollars. If you're working on a startup idea, we will help you accelerate it. A quick note on the membership. We're filling up, so we're switching to an application model starting May 2nd. If you're looking to sneak in before the application period, head to gettacklebox.com. It'll become a bit more competitive to join after that. On today's pod, we speak with Alex White, a two-time founder who sold his first business to Pandora and recently raised funding and launched his second subsidy. The big focus for the conversation was ideation. Alex spent months testing out various potential ideas, and he lets us in on the process, one you can easily follow as well. This is one of those interviews you might want to have a notepad handy for. I loved speaking with Alex, and I think it'll be super helpful from a tactics and mindset perspective for anyone thinking about working on or currently working on a startup idea. We will be back to our story format next week. I hope you enjoy the interview. Today, we have a fantastic guest, a friend of mine, someone who uh, I met a while ago and has done a lot of things in the startup world, has sold a business, is starting a new business, Alex White previously the co-founder of The Next Big Sound, which he sold to Pandora, and is currently the co-founder of Subsidy, a company democratizing access to capital for small businesses, a ton to learn around operating and executing on a company, and then kind of going through the ideation process. So very excited to have you on. Thank you, Alex, for coming. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So let's jump right into it. It's tough to mention that you've built and sold a company without talking a little bit about that company first. So let's start with maybe a description of The Next Big Sound, the company that you started and uh, what it was and, and, and a little bit of that story. Yeah. At Next Big Sound, we started tracking the online music data of every band in the world back in 2009. And we were on a mission to make all this data actually useful for individual artists and their teams. I think why it worked was really luck, timing, and a lot of hard work. It was a seven-year journey from start to finish there. And um, I knew from my time in the music business prior to starting that company that the industry wasn't tracking all of the new ways that people were, were interacting with music. They were still using Nielsen SoundScan, which was weekly CD sales reports. There was so much social data, streaming data now available um, that they weren't taking advantage of. So that's really what we ended up building. Very cool. Let's, for, for our audience, the early stuff is always the most interesting. So let's hop in a time machine and go back to the earliest days. What was like the first idea and how did you start executing on it and sort of where were you at in your career and life at the time? I had the idea for the first version of Next Big Sound when I was in college. I wanted to be a record mogul in the corner office signing bands to my own fantasy record <laughs> label and having the gold plaques on the walls. And I talked to all the corner office executives that I knew or would talk to me during my internships and ask them how they started, assuming that they would start as interns and work their way up to the corner office. And none of them said that. They all said they started huh. a record label or a management firm and got bought by a universal music group. So that was my first realization that I need to start a company and then sell it to Universal if I wanted to be in the corner office. So huh. um, this was 2005, um, the worst possible time in the history <laughs> of the recorded music business to start a record label. And I realized <laughs> that if I wanted to start a label, probably other folks did as well. And that if we had each person had the ability to sign bands that they thought were going to become popular to their own fantasy label, um, that could be a really fun game. And we could also, zooming out, understand how artists became popular. So that was the first version of the idea. I didn't tell anyone about it for three years since I <laughs> thought it was going to revolutionize the music industry. And uh, I made zero progress on the business <laughs> over those three years. So it wasn't until I went, uh, met my two co-founders, the two other folks on campus I knew who knew how to build websites in 2008. And we um, started and launched the first version of the site, a streaming music site um, that let anyone create their own label and sign bands. So kind of a fantasy sports for music idea. And how did, how did those first kind of months of having the product go? Like were people really interested in it from the start or were you sort of trying to chase people down or how did it go? Everyone we talked to said, Oh, what a great idea. I play fantasy <laughs> sports all the time and I love music and I will use this. Um, as soon as you build it. So we didn't know if we knew 
could even build the site itself. So we thought that was going to be the hardest part of the business. So we launched and expected red carpets and magazine covers and photo shoots and all of that. And, <laughs> and uh, the world didn't care at all. We were in Champaign, Illinois, where we'd raised 25K from an investor. And um, the biggest splash of cold water in our faces <laughs> that, um, and, and learning that actually launching, no one really cares. And <laughs> even folks who say to your face, I use it all the time. We can check the logs and see that they weren't actually using it. So we tried for a year to get that business off the ground, but we had no way to make any money. We tried everything we could think of to turn it from, you know, slow linear growth to um, exponential growth and, and nothing worked. So we were about to shut that company down when we applied hmm. to Techstars in Boulder, Colorado, got into the program and switched our idea in the first month to Instead of creating another streaming music site, we started tracking all the sites where people were already interacting with bands online and making that data useful using one of the core principles from our first try at it, which was we need to create something that's valuable enough for people to pay for. We don't want to have a situation where we need first get a million users and then be able to monetize in kind of a lightning striking twice. We just wanted to build something that was valuable enough to pay for from the get-go and using that as our verification criteria to prioritize what we were building. Now, I'm curious, that jump from building a product, and I, we see a lot of entrepreneurs do this, and I, I myself did this, where I built something and I was like, oh, it's going to be free for users and I'm going to get lots of people on and then I'm going to monetize somehow. And I feel like that that sometimes is just people being worried about charging money for a product because then you're kind of on the hook for it. Um, Talk to me about those first customer, even like the first paying customer that you had. Um, anything memorable about that? Yeah. So as we were switching ideas, we, sh we shut the first version down. We knew we weren't going to do that. And, but we didn't know what we were going to move to next. So I had 10 band managers from my time in the music industry that I was friendly with. And I set up weekly phone calls with them. I found a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany, which is the densest, most incredible book for starting a company out there. I'm pretty convinced that unless you have failed with one company, you're not able to actually sit down and read this book and follow it, but basically became our Bible for the summer of 2009 mm. and started with customer development process and conversation. This is before Lean Startup as a book came out and the methodology was really widespread, but it's the idea that the answers don't lie in your head, they lie outside of the building. So started off with 10 conversations with 10 band managers every week, asking them what their biggest problems were and if they would pay us, if we could solve them. And if you want to hear a lot of problems, talk to band managers about <laughs> an axle breaking down when the band's on tour or the drummer forgot her passport and uh, they're stuck at the border somewhere. Um, none of those problems were things that we could solve, but our first customers um, with that business were already trying to track this online music data by hand in spreadsheets, paying interns or paying digital marketers every day to go and fill in these spreadsheets with columns. And they would do it at different times during the day and not be able to track that many bands and miss the weekends when they weren't working. So we realized we could automate some of that and they would pay us um, to deliver those weekly email reports for, on their artists. Fantastic. So you went from trying to get people to do a new behavior to helping with an existing behavior that was frustrating and painful. Right. And the interesting part for me intellectually was, you know, all of the band managers knew what we were capable of building websites and that sort of thing, but none of them volunteered this as something they were doing already. We had mm. to come to them and say, um, Hey, we started tracking the data for your artists is this interesting and valuable? How would you use this? And they're like, actually, we have someone who's doing this for us already. I'm like, huh. well, can you send me the spreadsheet? And why didn't you tell me? And <laughs> said, I didn't think this was something that you could help me with. And so we use that, um, would this be valuable enough for you to pay for as a mechanism to try to filter out all the new features and functionality we were going to add? Very cool. Um, and what about you at the time? Did you have, sounds like you were pretty young at the time. Was this something that you had a lot of experience in or were you sort of figuring it out as you went? And, and yeah, were you, were you like, quote unquote, prepared for this? <clears throat> no, um, I'd wanted to be in the music business for 
for years and, and had experience on lots of different sides of the business through college, running the programming board at Northwestern where I went to college um, and having a radio show and touring with a band for two months on a nationwide tour. But, you know, I was 22 years old and my co-founders were 21 and we thought that that would be a huge disadvantage, but it turns out that as we were starting to meet with bigger and bigger managers and label executives and agents and publishers and promoters, that they kind of realized and recognized that we had grown up with these new services and platforms. Facebook's first uh, year on campus was my freshman year of college. So we'd literally mm -hmm. grown up with these platforms. And as they were new ones coming around, we were adding those um, very quickly. And it was daily instead of weekly and kind of were able to turn what I thought was a huge disadvantage. Who's going to buy enterprise software from a 22 year old <laughs> CEO and a team of, of 20 year olds into an advantage because we would show up and we would look like these executives, kids or grandkids who mm. um, were digitally native and knowledgeable about all of this stuff that seemed a little bit overwhelming to them. So trying to find those areas where you can turn what you might think is a disadvantage into an advantage. Fantastic. Yeah, that's uh, that's great advice because we get a lot of founders who come in and say, I need to do X, Y, and Z to be totally prepared to meet this opportunity. And you've sort of told me two things now. First, that the way that you found the fastest way to the corner office was not through the traditional path. And now this, that you having this sort of non-traditional background or just having a, a different set of experiences than everyone else selling this type of software gave you an advantage rather than a, rather than it being a disadvantage. Exactly. Cool. Very cool. Um, well, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I think the ideation process <clears throat> for subsidy is really interesting. Um, is there anything that I should have asked about <laughs> or, or anything that you want to pass along from that experience that might be helpful to folks getting started? Seven very intense years with Next Big Sound, almost eight, really burned into my brain a whole host of learning. <laughs> and all of those things are parts we're going to talk about with building subsidy and trying to be much more intentional and thoughtful from day one about what problems we're solving, how we go about solving them, how we find the right team and investors and partners and distribution channels and, and everything like that. And what sort of problems and opportunities are even interesting and worth pursuing. So um, with Next Big Sound, we had incentives to stay at Pandora for two years. One of my co-founders left after two, one left after three. I stayed for five years, ultimately running all content and programming, algorithmic, personalization as well as human curation and really loved mm -hmm. my time there and was really interested, uh, interesting um, experience. No part of me wanted to start another company. Um, <laughs> I took a year off and was about four months in when I realized I never want to retire. I just want to work on hard problems with smart people and that the mm -hmm. actual journey and, and second mountain to climb was what I was really um, after and interested in. So that is what led me to subsidy. And um, I can talk now about how I went from the middle of a year off to uh, venture-backed company number two. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to hear it. I think I have so much respect for people who jump right back into the lion's den. Uh, I know it's not easy to do. Someone mentioned that it being an entrepreneur is, is type two <clears throat> fun, which is the fun that is in no way fun at the moment, in, in the moment. But in retrospect, you maybe convince yourself it was fun. Um, but I'm, I'm curious. So you decide that uh, you're going to take this year off. And what, what was your process in terms of deciding the next career path? Because um, again, I know a lot of people reach out from the show and talk about, you know, they'd like to start a startup or, or maybe they just want to change careers. They just want to do something different. And that's hard to do. So I'm curious as to how you, you thought through it. Yeah, so Next Big Sound was Pandora's first ever acquisition. So wow. none of us had any idea what was going to happen. Pandora was a standalone publicly traded music company, ticker symbol P on the stock exchange. Um, this was a deal sponsor, met the CEO, full executive team, and had a front row seat to a very dynamic, I think we were the worst performing stock one year and <laughs> third best another year and just very volatile. Wow. Um, and I, I have Pandora to say, 
I have to cut in very quickly because I, I've told you this, but I think it's too funny that my now wife sat near you and was always intimidated by your team who came in because you were like the cool kids who had the startup that got bought. And I don't think she ever said a word to you. I think she was just intimidated for two years and I get such a kick out of that. Um, but anyway, I, I cut you off. Continue. It's a small world and I wish you'd um, <laughs> come, come say hi. Um, so none of us knew how it was going to go, but all of a sudden the out of cash date, the weight of running a company was off my shoulders. We sold mm. everything. People would on my team would ask about, you know, are we following Pandora's procedures or next big sounds? It's like, we are fully owned by next, uh, by Pandora. And we sold the tables and the chairs in the office. We sold <laughs> the IP and the trademarks. We sold all of the code and the brands and the logo and everything we built, customer base, clients, et cetera. Um, I took an approach to my career that I wish I'd thought of earlier and inspired kind of by the designing your life. It's a Stanford D school book and, and course, which was what are other, what are all my possible career options? How do I go wide on, on understanding and thinking in an alternate universe? What might I like to do as a career? And then how do I actually test those out before jumping in um, all the way? So the three possible careers I found, I thought of for myself, investor, as an entrepreneur, that always sounds really exciting and intellectually interesting and cushy and, and fun. Um, a professor and an author. So I'll, I'll take those backwards. As an author, so I pre-wrote 55 blog posts and published one a week for all of 2016. You can read wow. these on alexandrswhite.com. And I haven't posted that much since then. I realized if I'm not working on interesting things, then I don't have that much to talk about. So and the actual act of sitting in your chair and writing sounds very romantic and fun, but it's the hardest thing you could possibly do professionally, huh. I think. Wow. Um, a professor was the actual path I loved the best. I co-created a class called Data Analytics for the Music Industry. It's a grad level class at NYU Steinhardt with the Dean mm. Larry Miller. And it's now a required undergrad class and cool. I've taught for five years and it was a phenomenal experience. I really, really enjoyed every minute of that. And then as an investor, my co-founders and I from Next Big Sound, we put aside some money from the Pandora acquisition and invested in three or four data analytics companies a year for about five years, portfolio of 15 companies or so. Um, we call it Next Big Ventures. And after all of that, you know, realize that the investing feedback loop is way too slow for me. Um, you put money in, the company pivots, evolves, changes, and seven years later, if you're very lucky, turns into an exit or a liquidity event. And, um, you know, so I realized that probably starting another company or operating um, would be the best path for me. Mm. So then once you decided on that. And I, I love that thought process. I think that's fascinating. And and you didn't actually say, I'm just curious, what knocked professor off like full-time professor? Why, why did you decide not to do that? Well, the course I'd created was analytics in the music industry. And that was great. But part of what made it so great was I could bring in all of my contacts and practitioners from all facets of the music industry. So I think, you know, if I can teach history or economics or um, I, I have a social psychology, a very wide range of interests, um, but I only have an undergrad degree. And so I'm, I can't really teach <laughs> as a <laughs> professor without a master's or a PhD. And so I think ultimately that might be a fun um, next chapter. Down, way down the line, but for now, um, kind of closed off to me. Cool. So it sounds like professor and writer were byproducts of doing the interesting thing, which was the startup. So you said, let's just cut right to it, do the interesting thing again. There's a quote exactly. by someone that says, you have to do something worth writing about or write worth something worth reading. 
And I always thought that second one was a lot harder than the first one. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, cool. So you decide that you're going to start something new. And now we get into what I think is the most fun process. How did you land on subsidy? What did you talk through that process? <clears throat> it's a fun process and it's a stressful process, especially if you're operating with any sort of timeline like most of us in this world and giving yourself um, time boxing the opportunity to explore. I call it being in the wilderness. And I was kind of in the wilderness for probably six months. My One of my co-founders was in the wilderness for several years before founding his next company. Wow. And it was a very uncomfortable place for me to be. I love waking up and knowing my important priorities and what I'm working on and moving the ball forward and um, really looking for how I described it, my second mountain to climb, realizing that life lives on the sides of the mountain, not the kind of top rocky top part. And that the most interesting part is that journey along the way. So I really tried to um, enjoy even in the wilderness, um, enjoying that part of the exploration process. So mm. really the, the path for me was trying to narrow down from, I can work on anything to what's, what are the specific areas that really interest me? And I kept coming back to data and collective intelligence and cities and the real world. So the one idea I couldn't really shake was this idea of uh, retail site selection. If you want to open a bar, restaurant, coffee shop, yoga studio, H&M location, where's the right place for you to put it in any mm. given market or city? Mm. And we chased that down, talking to lots of really smart people, anyone who would talk to to me and um, lost conviction pretty quickly that we could build hmm. a big scalable software business in that area. And the reason was when asking, you know, how big a problem is this for you with the Warby Parker real estate team? They said, actually, it's one piece of a, the problem around site selection. If you hmm. tell me that this is the right corner or mall or intersection, is there any inventory actually available? Now I got to negotiate with the landlord and if the lease doesn't hmm. meet our terms or there's all sorts of issues. What about the design and construction and build out? Are we able to um, change the actual structure in a way that fits our needs and, and branding? And does all that work on the timeline for launching the store and on and on? And so a lot of those things were not software problems. They were human negotiation problems and lease inventory information online. Um, but as we were exploring site selection, we tripped over an adjacent area, which is around where should you open your manufacturing facility or data center? And there's all these incentives at the local, state and federal level designed to spur job creation and actual building and investment in real property. And we got more and more excited as we learned about all of these programs. There's thousands of them across the country. There's no comprehensive source for where this information lives. And we ran two experiments to help us build conviction around this area. It's one of dozens of ideas we chased down. Um, but this one got more and more exciting as we dug in. So I should say that at this point, it was myself and one other guy, Chris Clark. He was potential CTO, now our full-time co-founder and CTO. He was at YouTube running music data for them. And we mm. interacted periodically throughout our careers, crossing paths in music data land. Um, but we got reconnected through a mutual friend, Sanjay Amin, who put us in touch. And we started exploring ideas together, meeting every Friday um, and mm. iterating through a bunch of different options. So he brought a different set of skills, but was also interested in exploring data and the real world and cities. And <clears throat> as a partner um, through that, Wilderness was a really great process of exploring ideas and joining calls together, debriefing afterwards. What did you hear? What did you think? Et cetera. Yeah. So the two experiments we ran were uh, number one, an AdWords campaign where we bought traffic for small business incentives and driving small business owners to a five question type form where then we would manually get back to them with all the local state and federal incentives that they should look into for their business. And that yeah. was the first realization, like, wow, this is fragmented across 
municipal websites and broken links and PDFs and all over the place. And it would really be nice to have it all standardized and centralized with a consistent taxonomy. Um, and that's definitely a tractable product and engineering problem. Hmm. The second was around distribution and how do we actually reach these folks? We thought that we had to start regionally, like let's start in Ithaca, New York, where I'm from, and then central New York, and then uh, all of New York, and then the Northeast, et cetera. But what we realized is actually, if we start vertical, that gives us a better opportunity to reach um, adjacent customers and word of mouth. So we partnered with the National Independent Venue Association through our music industry connections. and sent out an email saying, Chris and Alex will help you find for your music venue that's been shuttered for the last year and a half through COVID, help you find additional programs beyond the shuttered venue operators grant, which was already well known and, and out mm. there um, for additional programs. And we didn't get any feedback. Um, no one signed up and filled in our music mm. venue type form. And we were confused and it was because of this kind of Nigerian prince, too good to be true value proposition <laughs> of free money from the government programs you are entitled to, but aren't aware of, um, sure. no cost to you. And it wasn't until we actually sat down with a few of the venue owners and walked them through all the things they were eligible for that we really saw things change. So a venue in Seattle specifically hires military veterans for security and bartenders. And there's something called the work opportunity tax credit for ex-military hires. That's 2,500 to $9,600 per employee per year. Wow. And with five military veterans on staff, he was looking at almost $50,000 in, um, in work opportunity tax credit that he had no idea about. And that was really the trigger. We saw them have their National Independent Venue Association subgroup meeting for Seattle venues. And he's saying, hey, I met with Alex and Chris and they found me, they're gonna save me $50,000 on my tax bill next mm. spring. And just like that, within an hour we saw every other music independent music venue in Seattle and Bellingham and neighboring cities sign up for, or fill in our type form. Wow. And so that repeated itself in Chicago and Atlanta and DC and New York city. And um, that really convinced us that the go to market approach for this problem would be vertically through industry trade associations. And as we were researching, all of these programs recognized that small manufacturers, um, we, we wish the music venues were manufacturers because there were so many more programs for manufacturers. And there's some good mm. economic reasons for that. There's, um, if you open a manufacturing facility, you have all the parts and component suppliers, you have delivery and logistics, you have exports, which are generating you know additional revenue. And there's uh, what's called a multiplier effect for every job that's um, higher on the manufacturing floor, it leads to many more jobs being created. So the states, cities and, and countries all know this and and that's where they've set up these incentives so there's a hundred billion dollars a year set aside by the government at all levels to incentivize all of these positive behaviors hiring ex-military as we talked about or um, investing in under-resourced areas or hiring folks that have faced barriers to employment in the past or creating new high-paying jobs higher than the median wage in the area and yet most of these programs are going to large businesses or going unused completely. Mm. So we want to be that team of Fortune 50 tax and legal experts in your corner as a small business owner, helping you discover access and collect all of these programs that were literally designed to help you improve your likelihood of success. So that's really the business we hit on. It wasn't kind of this flash of lightning as, as, uh, many people think before they start a company that it's just a genius with a single eureka light bulb moment it was hundreds of conversations where you're trying to listen unpack staying curious and really digging in to understand what they're doing now what they wish how they wish the world worked and and what's valuable enough for them to spend time and money solving so we were bouncing all of our different criteria, all of the exploration we were doing against Iowa's four criteria. Number mm. one, I've thought deeply about this problem area for more than six months and achieved some insight most people don't have. 
I mm. felt like with the music venue go to market vertical approach, that was an insight that isn't immediately obvious. Number two, solving this problem creates a legacy my kids will be proud of, you know, mm. creating jobs and helping small business owners certainly um, fits the bill. I can find people to work with that have complementary skill sets and high conviction to solve the problem. At this point, after two months of these experiments, Chris and I were fully bought in that this could be a really big business and, and worth spending the next potentially 10 or more years of our lives tackling. We didn't have uh, any business or relationships with small manufacturers, but we got connected to our third co-founder, Gil, who worked for a manufacturing trade association in California, worked for the governor's office and been in economic development for his whole career, wrote a book on economic incentives for small businesses and um, became a perfect kind of complement to Chris and my background and areas of specialty. And then number four, the solution to this problem can create a business worth more than a billion dollars. Mm. And we really think um, through our multiple phase plan um, that this business could be a very, very big and, um, and good for the world. I took about a million notes during that. I'm going to get through them. Um, that that's, I I'm like ready to join your company. That's very compelling. Um, it's not surprising that you've been able to, to raise money for it. Um, so I, th I think what, what really stands out to me is first the answer to all of your questions came through speaking with people. You just spoke with lots of people from varying degrees of like conversation down to the tests, which are just getting less biased feedback from people. Um, that sort of led you to some more depth around specific use cases, which sort of led to this idea that vertical was the right initial strategy and that this like this soundbite that would travel, that would sort of kickstart this game of telephone for you. And you might correct me, I might be wrong on this one, but it sounds like this first edge of the wedge was the military incentive that sort of got people in a specific vertical talking and allowed you sort of to grow in, in those, like I think of that as like the hub and spoke strategy where one kickstarts the hub, kickstarts the spokes. Um, and it sounds like you, you sort of orchestrated this purposefully. Like this was not by accident, this strategy. It, it's, um, I kind of love it. And, I, and anything you would correct with what I just said? I think it's all, all spot on. The opportunity that we were looking for was one where it, and this is really hard to find. What is a massive uh, evergreen market opportunity where billions of dollars are already transacting and changing hands that hasn't changed in years and years and through new technologies and expertise, there's an opportunity to kind of reinvent and be 10 or a hundred times better than what's currently happening. All of that needs to be true along with being able to find a small enough beachhead and wedge and starting point for it not to be fully overwhelming. So our initial go-to-market hypothesis was let's pick one state of 50 California, one vertical manufacturing. It's the largest of all the um, subsidized industries. And let's pick a single incentive, actually, the partial sales tax exemption. Mm. And by narrowing in on that, let's actually, that gives us the best possible chance to engineer word of mouth spread and virality and the narrowest target in terms of our initial product that we're building and the service that we're offering and way to talk to customers and really honing in there. And what I love about this business as an entrepreneur is how many vectors to expand that gives us, right? Mm -hmm. We can expand to additional verticals, states, incentives, all the above, go really deep with manufacturers um, and help them with additional capitalizing projects, equipment and leases, lease to buy and other you know, financing mechanisms. Yeah, I think it's so interesting how, because there's this enormous white space of just in like the subsidies for businesses in general and being able to get that specific will allow you, you sort of make three decisions there. 
that'll allow you to make a thousand decisions because that's the vertical that you're starting in. Then you'll figure out horizontal, vertical, whatever after that. Um, and I love the four qualifiers. I'll pop them in the show notes. Um, I've got them written down here, the insight, legacy, uh, complementary skill sets and size of potential market. I think that's a really good rubric. Um, I borrowed those from my next big sound co-founder, David Hoffman, who has a list of eight that he was using as he was exploring oh, wow. his next, next idea. The, the, the way, the map to get out of the jungle. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I have two questions that I think might be relevant for folks listening. So um, I think a lot of times we talk about these things high level and you say like, okay, I created this type form, a bunch of companies signed up and then we sort of like skip ahead. Um, but I, I think logistically that can be a pretty sticky bottleneck for folks. And a reason that they don't create the type form in the first place is like, what if you are the dog that catches the car? People sign up. Wh what did you do? You didn't necessarily have a product ready for them. So what happens when X companies sign up? Yeah, I'll be very open and truthful with each of these experiments we ran. So we started off, like I was saying, targeting a regional area. So I had cold called, cold emailed anyone in the economic development world around Ithaca where I grew up, because I thought that by having grown up in the town, they'd be more likely to answer my emails. <laughs> so um, Thomas Knipe was incredibly helpful and went to Cornell for his planning and was basically running economic development in Ithaca. Um, Lindsay at the SBDC in Binghamton and Chamber of Commerce, Downtown Improvement Business Improvement District, like lots of players in this ecosystem. So the first experiment was, can we get small business owners to fill in a five question type form and then pull the information that's needed? We started buying Google AdWords, um, but the problem is that not many people were actually searching for these terms. One of the biggest mm. problems with this whole space is that people don't know they exist and don't know what to search for. So um, we kind of expanded the terms broadly and then people still weren't filling in our type form um, almost at all. And so we expanded from, rather than Ithaca, New York, we went bigger to central New York, upstate New York, New York state. Finally, we said, screw it, let's expand to the whole US and we'll do this no matter what. Um, <laughs> and uh, then we had you know, enough volume finally of people filling it in, but it wasn't very targeted. It'd be an auto body shop in Naples, Florida. It would be a bagel shop in um, Milwaukee. It would be a random, um, part of the country. But anyway, that really let us see the fragmentation and some of the um, economies of scale that happened. It was like, yes, here's another submission from Naples, Florida, so we can recreate and reuse a lot of the local, state, and federal programs that we'd found for mm. this other business there. And once you actually tag and categorize things appropriately, you can kind of use them over and over again for relevant businesses. Um, so that was that first experiment. The second around, but so we sent out 25 emails to folks who'd filled in the type form. We got zero responses back. It was unclear if they used them, if they thought we were stupid, if they ignored them, et cetera. So the next move um, in my mind had to be that jump through, jump on the phone or Zoom and actually talking to people. So the way we did mm -hmm. it with the music venue experiment was you fill in this type form and within, um, and then you have to schedule a call where I will walk you through the programs mm. um, face to face. So this was mm. about an hour of work for each of these, those 25 and then an hour of work for each music venue that filled in our type form. Wow. And then plus a 15 minute walkthrough where I would end by saying, hey, I'm gonna send you an email right after we get off with all the different programs that we found for you. So it was a ton of work and uh, we had 25 or 30 venues fill that out. So that was kind of a month of my life was talking to music venues about the programs that they qualified for and getting to see the reaction when we actually jumped on the phone with them saying, my God, I had no idea we were in an opportunity zone. I had no idea that we were this or that this program existed or that I could renovate my facade and the front sign out front and the city would pay half of it. Um, so hmm. it was really and they were so thankful and um, 
interested and wanting to, you know, tons of follow-up emails and I caveated everything. I'm not a CPA. I'm not a tax expert. I'm not, it was all sorts of imposter syndrome, but just having someone friendly walk them through these programs and structure them in a way that I'd actually gone through and, and done this was clearly um, a big problem area for them and something that they found very valuable. And we actually cut the type form, closed it because it was just, the venues kept signing up and kept coming and each one was an hour and a half of my time. It was like, <laughs> we're done learning and I can't really keep doing that unless uh, we want to turn that into the business. So that was really some more of the nuts and bolts. Now that doesn't for, for the future experiments and kind of what we're doing now is that was just on the discovery side of things. That wasn't, we weren't applying for programs. We weren't collecting the money. So a lot of the, effort and I would say experimentation hypotheses now is how do we with small manufacturers partial sales tax exemption dial in and actually do the filing on their behalf and get that all the way through completion. So it's really interesting. I think it leads us into this next grouping of questions that I wanted to talk through um, prioritization. So there are a lot of things you need to validate or build out for this business. Um, there are lots of little challenges that I've been kind of noting down. What's like the methodology for prioritization right now? We have really clear, like at the end of the year, success looks like X, Y, and Z cool. having been completed. So we reference that on a weekly basis. Oh, wow. It still doesn't dial us into <clears throat> what are we, what's the most important thing for the business right now? So for when we were first starting out, it was, raising financing so Chris and Gil could quit their jobs and we could all do this full time. And now yeah. then it was um, building first admin tools around the incentives themselves and creating that initial California database. Um, now it's around outreach and onboarding of our first five and then hopefully 25 customers. And um, we kind of keep that theme every month what's the most important thing and we kind of update it as we go so that's what we really reference so if that's primarily gil who has all the relationships with manufacturers but if there's anything chris and i can do to support gil in that or vice versa on the fundraising anything chris and gil need to do to help me on the fundraising front that that's keeping the main thing the main thing so that's kind of how Fantastic. We, we prioritize yeah, I love that. And I think um, I think using an external example or giving like a, a framework for how to think about this uh, by me giving you an example might be helpful for, for listeners because I think you do this really well. So let's say that I'm starting a wine startup. Listeners of the podcast will recognize the wine startup that I'm obsessed with, Tuesday Wine Company. Um, it is the biggest whisper idea that you could ever think of. Uh, but I still believe in it. But it's basically half bottles of wine sold direct to consumer uh, that solves the problem of people opening up a bottle of wine on Tuesday, not finishing it and throwing it out. Uh, the definition of first world problems. But uh, what, so thinking through like what might we want to validate before we'd be confident putting a lot of time into pursuing an idea like this, how does, what's the prioritization look like? Or feel free to use a different example like that if you've got one. That's a great uh exercise. So just seeing that me 10 years ago with the first version of Next Big Sound, I would be not telling anyone about it and doodling <laughs> throughout the day in my other job or school around like what logos should we use and what <laughs> merch should we buy and what does the business card say and all of these things that don't move the needle or matter whatsoever. Um, me looking at that idea right now and, and having just kind of flexed the muscle for the last year around um, idea exploration and early validation. My first move like today would be going to my neighborhood wine stores with half bottles, half price, giving them mm. some crazy cut of sales and seeing if anyone buys. Mm. And this, the reason why I jump right there is nothing else matters if consumers <laughs> don't want it and wine sellers or your distribution point won't won't offer it. So I always say that distribution and credibility are the usually the two hardest things for startups hmm. um, to conquer. So that would be what I would do. If, if the wine store can't or won't stock these things, 
then that's red flags and I'd want to know maybe there's liquor laws or distribution distributor deals in place that would block this sort of thing and that would be good to uncover. Or if even worse, consumers buy full price bottles and just screw the top back on or other sort of reasons why they're afraid to, to transact on a half bottle. Um, I'd want to know that immediately instead of years in the future after I've quit my job and mortgaged my house and all of these sort of things. It reminds me of a story from the music industry that I think will be fun because it's a sexy business and, and might give people a peek under the hood at what seems like golden years and a potentially very different world. So there's a legend in the music business named Doug Morris. He was the CEO of Warner Music Group. Then he went to Universal. He, he grew Warner to the biggest label in the world, went to Universal, grew it to the biggest label in the world, and became CEO of Sony Music, all three wow. of the biggest major labels in the world. The um, thing that he brought to each of those companies was research A&R. A&R is talent scouting. And traditional talent scouts sit in smoky bars and they know talent when they see it. And they, it's the, you're going to be a star kid um, type <laughs> idea that, that everyone knows. What research A&R did very simply was you put the record on the radio, you put the record in the stores, and if it sells in the stores or flies off the shelves, you have a hit. So what they would do in the 70s, 80s, 90s, they would get a song played on a small market in Milwaukee or uh, Wichita or whatever market they could. <clears throat> the song would play and they would stack CDs at the front of that music and often just giving it away for free. You'll recognize this from wow. my Tuesday wine company idea. Mm. And they would go around to the 15 record stores and they would leave a box of each of these CDs um, on the counter. And hmm. then they would play the song once, usually in like an overnight rotation. They might play it again, maybe again. Then they would go back to all the stores or call and say, how many CDs do you have on your counter? We dropped off 12. They'd be like, oh, there's still 12 here. They're like, okay. Um, or they would call back and say, how many CDs do you have left on your counter? And they'd say, none. Can you send some more? And they're like, huh. this is a hit. Wow. Get this band signed. Private jet flies to, <laughs> you know, Alabama and picks them up, flies them back to Los Angeles or New York and signs them right there. So everyone started watching these what gets spun on the radio, what's signed and unsigned, and what's the in-market reaction to that exposure. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot that we in startup land can learn about that, which is you don't have to jump from zero hunch, multi-million dollar global superstar artist. There are small checkpoints along the way. One spin that happens in Saratoga one spin that happens in Portland and then seeing the in-market reaction start small. And then, wow, if we give this thing more exposure and more distribution, let's, let's imagine what that conversion would be. Tuesday Wine Company, we start with three liquor stores and wine stores in one area. And if a 12 pack of half bottles of wine sells out in a day or two, we're off to the races if it doesn't sell or can't be stocked or, or other problems come up, then we have to go back to the drawing board. I love that. I love that. That's solving the problem that matters the most first is great. There's, um, it reminds me of a saying by Mark Twain, which I'm going to butcher, but it's something like, it's not the things that you don't know that'll hurt you. It's the things you know for sure that just aren't true. Something yeah. like that, which is like, I love that. I hear that all the time where the, the corollary would be someone figuring out how to partner with wineries to get these half bottles made before they've tried to sell it. And just assuming that because they've sort of like the, the first example that we started the podcast off with where your friends said that, of course, they would use this uh, play fantasy, the version of fantasy sports with bands. Of course, they would if it existed. Of course, people would buy half half bottles of wine if they existed. Um but that's not something to take for granted. Uh, very cool. I love that. Well, let's let's go to the final stuff. Uh, I know we're we're getting close on time, so uh, this category I think of as sort of the random startup 
things that you've learned as you've kind of gone through a full life cycle and are now midway through another life cycle of a startup. Um, so I guess the first thing I would ask is the billboard question, which I love, which is stolen from Mark Andreessen, but that's okay. Where if you could put a billboard up that people working on a startup idea, particularly really early stage folks, so maybe even still have their job, have this startup idea that they love and are, are trying to make progress, what would you put on that billboard that they had to read every day? Nothing happens without you taking action. Mm. The default state is just nothing happening, nothing changing. And if you aren't going on offense, then nothing's going to happen. I if love I had that. more more billboards and multiple billboards, it would be <laughs> something around enjoying each part of the journey. And like with kids and startups, there's this tendency to be like, if only I was working on this full time, if only we raised our seed round, if only we got into Y Combinator, if only our daughter was potty trained, if only she, you know, ate solid foods. But by doing that, you really miss the actual journey, which is what life is all about. I love that. We'll end on that. That's fantastic. Um, Alex, thank you so much. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. Um, good luck with subsidy. Although from the pitch, I'm pretty confident you'll be able to assemble a team, get funding, all of that very easily because it's extremely compelling. But thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. I've loved uh, talking with you and getting to know you and listening to Idea to Startup. I find it even as I'm doing this for a second time and, and going back around, I love the reminders that you have every single week around talking to customers, testing hypotheses, iterating and moving the ball forward. So keep doing what you're doing and, and spreading the word. I appreciate it. it means a lot. Uh, thank you so much. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and you'd like for it to work, we can help. Here's a quote from someone in the program. Without you, I was wandering around like a kid in the grocery store looking for his mom. With you, I know exactly what to do, when, and how. It's night and day. That could be you. Head to gettacklebox.com slash no whisper ideas. Applications open up May 2nd. So if I were you, I would try to get in before that. Have a great week.